Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. The fourth annual New Haven Documentary Film Festival begins tonight, Thursday, June 1st, and we'll be featuring over 70 shorts, webisodes, and feature-length nonfiction movies, many of which are about local subjects or by local filmmakers. On today's episode, I'll be talking with two Connecticut filmmakers with movies playing at this year's NH Docs. On the first segment of the show, I'll be joined by documentary filmmaker Carol Evans to talk about her new movie, The Life and Gardens of Beatrix Ferrand, about a pioneering female landscape architect who lived and worked in New Haven for over a decade in the first half of the 20th century. On the second segment, I'll be joined by writer-producer Fred Cantor to talk about The High School That Rocked, another movie that we'll be playing at NH Docs, about how from 1966 to 1968, Staples High School in Westport, Connecticut hosted concerts by some of the biggest names in rock and roll, including The Doors, The Animals, Cream, The Rascals, and Sly and the Family Stone. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio Carol Evans. Carol is a six-time Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker based out of North Haven, Connecticut. She's the director of documentaries about everything from the Grove Street Cemetery to the Amistad Revolt to a history of African Americans in Connecticut, and was on Deep Focus in early 2016 to talk about her feature-length doc, Letter from Italy, 1944, A New American Oratorio. Her latest documentary is The Life and Time, or Life and Gardens, of Beatrix Ferrand, which will be playing on Monday, June 5th, at the Whitney Humanity Center as part of NH Docs. Carol, welcome back to the show. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so um, let's kick off by just asking, who, who is Beatrix Ferrand? Beatrix Ferrand, born in 1872, was a landscape architect who really was very inspirational in that a woman during that time to decide to become a landscape architect was really incredible. She was the niece of Edith Wharton, so she was part of this East Coast elite. And yet, she could have just done, you know, done dinner parties and, um, and been a de- debutante. But she decided she really wanted a career. So to me, that is incredible. She ended up opening her own professional office at the age of 23 after educating herself at Harvard University in horticulture, Columbia University in civil engineering, and going on a grand tour of Europe in order to study classic gardens. The other main point about her is she is one of the 11 founders of the American Society of Landscape Architects, which is still the organization that is is for landscape architects. Now, I, I am, or I was, maybe a bit of a novice to the world of landscape architecture, so it was a delight to learn about Beatrix Farron, but I understand that she is quite a, quite a renowned landscape architect. I mean, she is one of the kind of pillars of the field, as you're saying, one of the founding members of this organization in the early 20th century. And one of the parts of her biography that most interested me uh, was how so many doors were closed to her because she was a woman working in a quote-unquote gentleman's profession of landscape architecture in the early 20th century. But on the flip side, so many doors were open to her because of her social and family connections. Could you tell us and the listeners a bit about the kind of family that she came from, the types of clients that she worked with? Who, I mean, I think a lot of these names will be pretty familiar to anyone who knows anything about the kind of Gilded Age in American history. So her mother and father were the Cadwalladers and the Joneses. So those are elite names. So her neighbors were the Rockefellers, the J.P. Morgans, and they had a summer home in Bar Harbor. So even in New York City, if they weren't seeing all of these families every day, when they got to Bar Harbor and their home on the shore, uh, they would socialize with all of these families. The interesting thing to me is that, yes, These connections got her those first jobs, and she did 50 residences in Bar Harbor. But she wouldn't have kept being able to do the jobs and be hired if she wasn't an exceptional landscape architect. So on the one hand, it got her in, but on the other hand, she had to be really good. So as far as the male-female, I always say she pried the door open. She managed, because of her sheer persistence, and, you know, when somebody's really good at something, you kind of, you want them. So she was able to get in. But even when she got in, often, you know, professional men in the 1900s, early, you know, 20s, 30s, it was difficult to have a woman really running the show. She wanted to help site buildings with male architects. She wanted to run the male work crews. I mean, that's really exceptional for a woman in those times. 
Yeah, I was I was listening to a a film podcast that is a favorite of mine called uh, it's called Film Spotting Streaming Video Units about movies streaming online right now, and they're doing an episode about female cinematographers recently. Uh, and one of the cinematographers they highlighted recalled uh, being asked by you know some producer when she was rung on to be the camera per- or the cinematographer on the movie. She was asked, can you, being such a little woman, handle all of these big lights and pointing to all of the lights used on set? And she said, as a cinematographer, I don't have to move around these lights. <laughs> I think about where I want these lights placed, and then I point at the big guys and they move them around. And I think that there is something, um, you know, this is that kind of resonated a bit when I was thinking about the life of Beatrix Farron and that she is the kind of artist, the designer, the, the kind of imaginative creator of these landscapes. She was also an incredibly kind of physically hardy woman. She talked about the physical toll that it takes to be a landscape architect. Could you tell me and the listeners a bit about some of the resistance, if any, that you found in your research that she faced being a woman in this role? And I know that she came from a very supportive family in terms of her mom being a very independent woman, her aunt being Edith Wharton and, and encouraging her both in her study of uh, of horticulture and traveling Europe and visiting all these different gardens. But... Um, and was was there any point in your kind of research on Beatrix where she thought that it was almost I don't the the resistance was too much? I didn't find that. I think she was incredibly determined. She had such an intellect, and my my mother has this in kind of intellect. And when you're so confident about your intellect and your knowledge of your subject, both horticulture and landscape architecture, I think it really pushes you through a lot of adversity. Uh, Even at Yale and Princeton, where she was the consultant for both of those universities, there were jokes about her, about being the Bush woman. And, uh, but, you know, I'm sure it was incredibly isolating for her not to be able to have any camaraderie with the people she was working with, because it was basically all men. But she was a bit of a loner and um, and a perfectionist, and I think she just was going to do the best job she could no matter what. Uh, at one point in your documentary, uh, one of the experts who you're interviewing says that rediscovering a fair and designed is kind of like rediscovering a Rembrandt. Um, and there's a, I was flipping through a, a book by Judith Tankard, who's also interviewed in the movie, right? and she, she recalls a, a quote, quote from... Beatrix in the late 1890s when she was first starting out uh, as a professional landscape architect. And she said to a journalist, it is work, hard work, and at the same time, it is perpetual pleasure. With this grand art of mine, I do not envy the greatest painter or sculptor or poet that ever lived. It seems to me that all arts are combined in this. Um, and it really, I mean, she really is a, she's a true artist. And I wonder if you could introduce me and the listeners to a bit of uh, Beatrix as an artist. What are some of the kind of defining characteristics of her landscape uh, designs and architecture? What um, What is a Beatrix Farron designed uh, landscape? So I think one of the things that is really unique about Beatrix Farron is a hundred years later, not only do our gardens still exist and gardens are ephemeral, ephemeral, so they could be gone in five years, unlike architecture, but she created gardens that have lived over a hundred years and are still being rediscovered. So what are the kinds of characteristics would a garden have to have to have that kind of longevity? Well, first of all, she was very aware of the environment. So whenever possible, she looked at the natural contours of the land. And rather than bulldoze everything, she looked at the cliffs and the rocks and the moss and the the ravines, and then she incorporated that into the design. The second thing was she was a great listener. She really, these were family friends, so she had a very personal relationship with these individual people, and she listened very well to see what was it that they wanted. So she incorporated what they wanted into the design so they would be happy living in their environment. And the third thing is she had a classical education. So just like if you go to Italy and all of those gardens, many of them are still there, it's because they're classic. They're they're based on geometric design, classic, you know, lines. And so she took the classic lines. She incorporated that into this naturalistic approach that you would flow from the the formal areas into a naturalistic landscape. 
And I think that's one of her other signatures. In addition, she was very well known for her three-dimensional look at a landscape. She just didn't do a a bed. She decided, let's have espaliered trees going up a wall, or let's have um, some kind of creeping juniper so that you have plants on the wall. Then let's layer the beds. Let's have taller plants at the back, and then let's have them go towards the front in different layers with different textures and different colors that bloom at different times, like when the client will be at home, when the students will be on campus. And then she designed the terraces, the steps, the balustrades. She she designed everything. She even designed the iron lattice work. She designed the sculptures. She even designed the seating. So I actually equate her more to a Frank Lloyd Wright of landscape architecture. She really did everything. You know, it's it's really incredible looking at uh, some of the archival photographs and some of your kind of contemporaneous visits to these gardens because, uh, especially thinking, of, I know that she she had such a um, kind of wide range of expertise and that she knew so much about horticulture, she knew so much about architecture. Uh, she was inspired by Gertrude Jekyll, who's another name that I wasn't familiar with, but I'm just blown away by any photos of her, uh, these kind of perennial, dense uh, flower walls that she created, where, again, getting back to the artistry of this, I believe Beatrix Farron said that designing a flower garden is is more like being an impressionist painter than about anything else and that you're working with an incredible kind of density of colors and textures. And it really comes through in just about everything that you look at that Beatrix works on. So now uh, we're a few minutes into our conversation about Beatrix, but um, I realize we haven't spoken about any examples of uh, projects that she's worked on yet. You mentioned uh, her working on estates um, in kind of Maine and Bar Harbor, but uh, maybe take me and the listeners a few s- through a few s- of the uh, examples of kind of projects that she's best known for? She's probably best known for Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C., and I will say that was the first garden I saw of hers. And I saw it, I believe it was February, when nothing was even really blooming. And as we say in architect landscape architecture, the bones were so beautifully laid out. The, the formal rooms around the house, you know, the terraces, the different kinds of... Um, perennial gardens, vegetable gardens, the lawns edged with trees and rock walls. You could just see that it was all there. So I think that's her most famous. And then really go to Maine at Northeast Harbor in um, Bar Harbor, Maine, where the Rockefellers had the kind of money where they could bring in, you know, the ancient Asian statuary that created this beautiful spiritual uh, spirit path, as it was called, with all natural Uh, foliage on either side, and then to a much more formal garden surrounded by rose uh, stucco walls capped with Peking uh, wall uh, yellow tiles uh, with a moon gate, a bottle gate, Buddhas up in the the woods with moss-lined paths. Um, So those are probably her two most famous, but she also did uh, the East Garden at the White House um, because she knew the, uh, the Woodrow Wilsons, she did three beautiful gardens that have been recently restored in Connecticut. I think Waterford, uh, in Waterford, the um, um, Harkness Memorial State Park is probably the most elaborate because that was a beautiful estate. Hillstead has the sunken garden that if you look at it from above, this is when um, Diana Belmore said it's like looking at a Rembrandt painting because it's so beautifully conceived with these geometric uh, beds that make up this beautiful sunken garden. And then Promisec, which is a, a limitedly open spiritual center, has a very informal but beautiful uh, garden in uh, Bridgewater, Connecticut. Um, I decided I did want to go out to California because, you know, she was kind of thrust into California. She, I don't think she had ever any intention of going there, but she was married to Max Farron, who was a very well-known history professor and um, Benjamin Franklin Scholar at Yale, and he was given or asked to be the director of the Huntington Library in Pasadena. So then suddenly she had to try to reinvent herself in California, so she did the gardens at some of the gardens at Caltech and Occidental College. Now, I noticed uh, that you said, as we say in landscape architecture, uh, early on in your description of uh, the kind of style and examples of Beatrix's um, gardens, 
and landscapes. And you yourself have a background in landscape architecture, right? You, I believe you, did you get a BA or a BS yes, in, so in landscape architecture? Yes, is in horticulture with an emphasis in landscape architecture because my mother is a plant geneticist. My dad was an agronomist out of Cornell. I was born in Ithaca. And when you grow up in that kind of household, I've gone to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gardens over my entire life. So I always thought I would go into the life sciences. So tell me a bit about having that background in this field. Um, when is it that you first came across Beatrix Ferrand as um, as a kind of pillar of this field? Uh, when did you first start visiting her gardens on a regular basis? And uh, I, don't, I don't know, how did that expertise, or at least background, help inform the way that you wanted to put together this documentary? Because obviously this is for not just people with, with degrees in horticulture or landscape architecture, and you by no means need that background. I, I didn't even know who Beatrix was when I first started watching. Um, but I wonder how, as, uh, as someone with that background like yourself, how does that influence the way you put together this movie? So I'm a member of the New ha Garden Club of New Haven, and um, Diana Balmori, who wrote one of the books about Beatrix Farron, American Landscapes Beatrix Farron, uh, came to give a lecture, and... I went up to her, this was 12 years ago, 2005, and I said, one day I'm going to do an interview with you because I'm doing a film about Beatrix Farron. And she said, okay. So it took me nine years, and I eventually got that interview. But I think that when you're a documentary filmmaker, you know, you want to do films that you really love the material. And because, you, you know, this has been three years I've been working on this, and sometimes it's a lot longer. So for me to find a project that actually was about something I care so much about, kind of the, our environment and how we live, um, and then combine that with my 30 years of filmmaking, uh, doing historical documentary film, films the last 27 years, uh, films about the history of Connecticut, I mean, it was like the perfect melding. So after that, after talking to Diana Balmori, I just started going to the gardens that I explained, you know, the Dumbarton Oaks, and I just started visiting, and I thought, you know, she really is a person that she should have an American Masters series on, on PBS. You know, this is how good she is. So, you know, because I'm just funding it by myself, um, you know, I just start cobbling together, you know, getting to go to, to these various archives. Um, so what I do as a filmmaker is when I get to a site, I meet a curator, a head gardener, so that I very quickly understand what, what element she did, because it's ephemeral again, what's still left or what she did. So I'm always trying to learn about what it is she did. And I think your question about you know me as a filmmaker, I'm most interested in people. So although I'm interested in history, I'm really interested in what motivates people I like to find out, you know, people that have kind of been lost to obscurity, I want to tell their story because when people are significant and they've got done this kind of work and contributed to our community, they should be, that, that history should be revealed and we should have a new appreciation, which is why as a Yale fellow, I'm so interested in the gardens at Yale because Beatrix Farron did these extensive gardens at Yale that nobody knows about. So to me, uncovering these gems is really important. Now, again, this is speaking to my own relative ignorance in this field, but did you, did you feel like th that Beatrix Ferrand is someone who needs that kind of that restoration and that kind of rejuvenation in the public eye? I mean, again, clearly, I did not know her better, so there's one person who would benefit from more attention paid to Beatrix Ferrand. But do you think within the world of, of horticulture and landscape architecture, she is someone who is, does she kind of remain present at the forefront of people's minds who work in this field? Or do you find her kind of slipping back into more of the annals of history and constantly needing a kind of shove back up front? I think landscape architects, people in the field, they do know who she is. And anybody who really has a good history of, the, of gardens and landscape architecture, they do know who she is. I think it's more that you know, individuals, say, in garden clubs or people at libraries or people on college campuses who, you know, didn't study this, so why, how, why should they know? But they're living in Beatrix Farron territory, and yet they don't understand that she is the one that created, say, the moats at, at Yale. 
So every day you go by all those beautiful trees blooming between the buildings and the streets, somebody had to think of, oh, let's plant that so that it's a, be- it's a beautiful transition between the building and the sidewalk or all the courtyards at Yale or the extensive Marsh Botanical Gardens that were visited by 10,000 people in May and June of each year in the 20s and 30s. You know, I, I, I do, you know, it's kind of a two-way. So the people who are really in the business do know her. But I think she is she is being lost in a way to the greater community. And her I mean, her work is so present in the day to day life and experience of anyone who kind of lives near uh, a, an area that she worked on. I mean, anyone, you know, Yale is so often commended for its incredible beauty and usually for its architectural beauty. But uh, so much of that beauty comes from the the plants, the flowers, the design of the courtyards, the anything and everything that a landscape architect like Beatrix um, would work on. And you're, I mean, that's that really does stick with me. How um, you know she? I was reading that her many of her early gardens uh, do not survive because they required a, a highly skilled and trained gardener to maintain them, and and without that kind of professional personnel, they just kind of with wither away. Um, so to speak to the longevity of someone who works in a field as ephemeral as, you know, with plants, I think is, is a, a difficult, but certainly, I mean, an, an admirable and worthwhile pursuit to, to remember the, both the ephemeral beauty of something like this, but also the, the enduring beauty of it. Um, I want to say that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Carol Evans, a North Haven-based documentary filmmaker, uh, whose latest movie, The Life and Gardens of Beatrix Farron, will be playing at this year's New Haven Documentary Film Festival. Um, could we spend a second more on New Haven? Because I'm I'm curious as to what this beanie show about movies in New Haven seems appropriate to dwell a second more. But she, so she married Max Farron, who was a professor at Yale, moved up here and lived here for about a decade, maybe a little bit more, um, and worked on a number of uh, courtyards in the residential colleges. I remember reading that New Haven was a bit of a kind of professional culture shock for her in that she'd never really worked in an urban setting like New Haven before. And that presented uh, um, a number of challenges that maybe designing for, for Maine um, did not present. I wonder, well, I wonder if what you, what you found when researching her time in New Haven and what, uh, again, what are some of the Beatrix Farron kind of landmarks that people in the city can, can take a look at? Well, I really, it is Yale. Um, she's credited with designing about 75% of the Yale campus. So she came here in 1913, and she was an advisor till 1927. So she had a number of years here. Um, and what still exists really are the moats, um, some of the courtyards, uh, cross campus, the Divinity School, the um, some little remnants at the president's house and the medical school. Um, and then, of course, what I feel is the future gem of her work at Yale, which is going to be the Marsh Botanical Gardens. And so one of the things she did that was so innovative there that no landscape architect had really thought of in, in America was she started a nursery at Princeton and then subsequently at, at Yale in order to grow the plants that were going to be used on campus. Because if you remember, it was the arts and crafts movement at the time, and they were very much into use local. It's kind of funny. We're back to that now. But you should be growing your own plants. You shouldn't be transporting them from California. Grow what you know and and then use that on the campus. So, um, But I think the future um, of that north campus area, and I've had some interest um, from Yale about, you know, it's, it's not that it's my idea. Um, there are many people interested at Yale about doing more with her gardens. And I'm, they're using my film or I'm using my film to just get people all up to the same speed about the importance of her work at Yale. That's wonderful. Oh, I, can't, I will definitely keep my eye out, out for that. Um, was there anything that particularly surprised you in your research? I mean, you, you traveled all over the country and, and went to her archives. I wonder if... Uh, if there were aspects of her life or her work that you were very, you know, unfamiliar with beforehand and thought this is something that I really want to draw attention to or makes you respect her all the more, what, anything surprise you over this, this research? 
Well, I had heard about the archive at Berkeley uh, for quite for many years, and I finally went there. And you walk in, and there are thousands and thousands of her plans, and you know her drawings. And it was remarkable to me how scholarly she was, in that every design seemed to have every design folder seemed to have tucked in it uh, some uh, reference to some classical garden, all the research she had done. For instance, the Yale folder, there was a drawing of Padua, Italy, the garden there, the famous historical uh, Padua garden. And she would take all this research and then use it for each of these gardens. So it was, you know, it was this very interesting combination of being an artist, but also being a researcher. Because she wanted, you know, things to have significance, like historical significance. She just didn't want to throw things in. She also was a big proponent of native plants back in the 20s and 30s. So now here we are back in that, that we want native plants. She wanted native plants in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, I uh, Another part of the documentary that I so loved was thinking about her as a a writer and a, a lecturer um, for both popular and scientific and kind of trade magazines, but also trying to um, bolster the legitimacy of this kind of somewhat new professional art form of landscape architecture in the early 20th century. And then towards the end of the movie, you talk about how she donated her whole library and all of her prints and, and all of her kind of years of accumulated knowledge um, that I guess now resides at this archive in, in UC Berkeley. Uh, and it's such, um, again, speaking at th- speaking to that um, that balance of the ephemeral nature of working with plants to the enduring kind of knowledge base that she helped create um, and that still is available in, in your movie and also in, in the archive out of Berkeley is something that um, I, I think is is important for anyone looking to establish a legacy, right, around their art form. But as we, um, as we draw to the end of our interview, I want to ask you about where can people learn more about this movie? Where can people see it? And also, where, where can people find out more about what, what you're up to, Carol? So the, do, the documentary actually has its own website, BeatrixFerrinDocumentary.com, and it is screening on Monday at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival, uh, which is June 5th at 6.30 at the Whitney Humanity Center. Also, this is one of these films where I've had more requests for screenings all over the country than any film I've ever made. It's screening in Bar Harbor, Maine, at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., at the Kumar Art Museum in Jacksonville, Florida, the New York chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architecture, Dunbarton Oaks Conservancy State Park in Washington, D.C., and I just got back from Nevada uh, for a screening there. So it's just really calling to people. That's wonderful. So it's, it'll be playing at a few of the locations that she worked on. That is great. Um, well, we will make sure to link to uh, and post information about those screenings on deepfocusradio.com, where this interview will be archived. Um, and Carol, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this movie. I, I really loved it, and I hope that people come out and see it. Thank you so much. Okay, coming up next, a conversation with Fred Cantor about his movie, The High School That Rocked, that will also be playing at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival. But first, let's hear a little bit of local band Ellison Jackson playing the song Man From Lowell. Forgotten my own name 
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the second segment of today's show, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Fred Cantor. Fred is a Westport-based writer and producer, a, a retired consumer protection attorney, uh, whose latest movie, The High School That Rocked, which was directed by Christopher Casey Denton and will be playing on Saturday, June 3rd, as part of this year's New Haven Documentary Film Festival. Fred, welcome to Deep Focus. It's a it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming up to the studio. You drove up here from Westport or came up here yes, by train? Tom, uh, Tom, thanks for having me on, and I am happy to say that 95 was no traffic problem. So. <laughs> Great. That's our, our weekly Deep Focus traffic report, and we'll catch you next week. No. Um, so, Fred, uh, uh, how about, let's start off with what, what is The High School That Rocked? The High School That Rocked is a documentary short that tells the story of how six legendary bands now in the rock and roll hall of fame all played at Staples high school in Westport. And it's just a two year span from 1966 to 68. And, um, that concentration of all-star bands at or near the peak of their fame, uh, was something I had never heard of and, and, and thought it would make a great subject for a documentary and uh, and that's why I decided to do this. Uh, tell us tell us the names of a few of those bands because I think I mean you you're not kidding that these are really the kind of representative iconic bands of mid sixties rock and roll. Uh, some of them played in New Haven quite infamously. But tell tell us about some of, some of the bands that played the, at Staples. The, the 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 six bands that are the focus of the documentary. There there are a couple others in there as well, but the six that are the focus are the Animals, the Yardbirds. And by the way, when the Arberts played, uh, Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck were both part of that band during that brief period of time. The Rascals, The Doors, Sly and the Family Stone, and Cream. And what's more incredible than that, maybe, is that I somehow missed them all. <laughs> and to this so day. You, you were a graduate of Staples, right? I graduated, but I was in junior high at that time. And. Um, my parents were kind of strict about my going out at night, and uh, I was a huge music fan, but I I didn't get to go to those concerts, and it was one of the inspirations for my wanting to do this to sort of make up for the fact that I that I missed those concerts. So you're a middle schooler in early 1970s Westport, 1960s, you, 1960s. Right. You gra- oh right, you graduated high school in, in, in 71. Right. Um, did you? know about these concerts even though you didn't attend or were your friends going were your uh teachers well that that was part of the uh, i guess the the reason for my not going my two closest friends in junior high the two guys i used to hang out the most with and we would listen to records together and and all their parents had kind of the same attitude my parents did <laughs> so if i had a friend who's Parents said, hey, you can go and we're going to drive you there. It might have been more likely that I would have gone. But unfortunately, because of my two other friends, so Big Al and Jeff, I'm, I'm going to blame you too for my not going. <laughs> is, is this a part of Staples history that the school itself uh, currently kind of celebrates and memorializes? Or is this, I mean, this is one of the, uh, the kind of painful legacies of that era of, of rock and roll. And maybe, I mean, this is probably applicable to numerous different forms of counterculture, right? Where it, when it comes off, it is, it is so exciting. It, it, it is so revolutionary in the face of, you know, anyone over 30 and then slowly, but surely it becomes the kind of default, you know, you're hearing light my fire on every single classic rock stadium radio station as you're driving up 95. Um, and I wonder if this is a, um, a, a part of staple. I mean, I was amazed that the board of education uh, agreed to allocate funds for these concerts at at the time in in the 1960s. So clearly, there must have been some kind of acceptance or tolerance for it happening. But what what is the like institutional memory of this today? Well, let me jump back to the point you just make made about the board of ed approving it. Um, and it's something we. Uh, try to establish in 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 the film that Westport back then and for quite a while before that even it had a tremendous reputation as a progressive arts community uh, there were a number of prominent writers uh, living there at the time uh, Max Schulman who had bestsellers in the New York Times bestseller list A.E. Hotchner there were some very famous uh, artists such as Stephen Dohanos and uh, Hardy Gramacki 
Um, the Westport Country Playhouse was there and was well established at that time. So Westport had this reputation as kind of an open arts community. I don't think Darianne at the time or New Canaan or some other Fairfield County Times would have done it if someone had approached the Board of Ed because, right, you're right. Rock sort of had this image at the time, but Westport, I think, was more tolerant and more accepting. As far as the institutional memory, a lot of these kids have heard the stories over the years from some teachers who were there back in the day. Um, and, but there are others who go, come on, you know, the doors played here. So I, I just wanted to also convey a little bit of the history here because I'm not the only one who thought this would make for a, gr a great subject. Um, what happened was 10 years ago, while we were in post-production on America's Lost Band, the rock documentary I worked on about the remains, I was thinking about this as a subject for a documentary or a documentary short. And then I got sick. I developed some major health issues, so I put it on, on hold. About five years ago, I was still thinking about it, but I couldn't go ahead. So I thought it would be a great subject for the Staples Media Lab for the kids to work on. Um, in part because I was thinking about what you just said about the institutional memory, helping to spread the word. And right at that time, I learned through Facebook <laughs> that three uh, people who graduated a year ahead of me were thinking about doing a book, not only about those concerts, but also about other concerts that happened at Staples. So since the person who spearheaded it, Mark Smolin, uh, was in California, I offered to help with the local research, looking at the Staples newspapers. They had back issues, the school, the town crier, the local paper, the yearbooks. So that led to, and if anyone's interested in this history, an ebook that Mark put out called The Real Rock and Roll High School. And in part, what he was trying to do too was help, you know, put pen to paper to show how all this happened. And uh, so now, finally, there was something that was there for kids to see and learn about it. And then finally I had a bit of an uptick in my health this last fall. So I decided to work on the documentary I'd originally thought about. And one of the kids from the Staples media lab, uh, Casey Denton, who graduated in 2014 and was recommended to me by one of the teachers there and who had previously worked on a couple of small personal video projects for me. He became the person I brought on board to be the director. And he, he likes the music of that era, so that was obviously helpful. He had heard the stories about the Doors, but he really embraced this. And, and, and I might want to add, the job that Casey did, and he brought on two of his Emerson College uh, film program classmates to work on it, they were all fantastic. Um, they really brought to life what I had envisioned. And, um, you know, Staples might, have, might not have the music at the school that they had back in the day, but... This media lab teaching kids how to d develop and hone their skills with film and film editing, or now it's digital, obviously, editing. Um, that's something, obviously, we didn't have in the day. And that, again, is kind of uh, a part of the legacy of the arts emphasis in Westport. You know, I'm, I, I, I really want to say that this is an expertly put together short documentary. It doesn't feel like a student film. We had um, Charlie Musser, who's one of the co-directors of the festival on last week, and he was talking about how, you know, one of the biggest changes in documentary filmmaking since he started out in the early 1970s to today is, of course, the advent of digital filmmaking and how, you know, first student films can be of similar professional quality to a professional filmmaker's first film back, back in the 70s. Um, one, you don't have to worry about spending as much money on film, of course, um, but you also, the just the sheer, the, the ease and also this, I guess, institutional kind of uh, commitment to training young students uh, how to use digital media you really, I mean, you get something like the high school that rocked that does incorporate all of the elements that we associate with documentary, the archival photographs, the videos, the interviews. Um, but it's, I mean, I was, I was very impressed when I found out that it's, this is a, a student film because it really feels like. Well, well let me just uh, take one, one minor correction. I, I, I can't say it's strictly speaking a student's film because I collaborated closely with him, but. Having Maybe said a student that, directed, right? But having stuff. said that, right. yes, absolutely. Uh, Casey was the director. Uh, the, the two members of the film crew with him were students, and Casey uh, absolutely did the editing. But we, you know, we did a lot of back and forth. So uh, 
it was a collaboration and that's why I, I didn't enter it technically as a student film because I didn't think it'd be right. But on the other hand, Casey obviously played a huge role in this. And I, I guess to sum it up, I, you know, when we did America's Lost Band, we had a, a full-blown professional crew with experienced people. And the kind of work that Casey did and, and his crewmates, I, I felt I was working with a, a professional crew as well. That's how competent and good they are. So you're wearing a shirt in the studio right now that has the silhouettes of the remains and the remains uh, branded across it. Actually, the, a band that even though I am also a fan of and grew, kind of grew up on this music, I had never heard of the remains before. So this is a discovery for me. But one of the things that I so appreciate about this movie is that it's not just uh, a kind of nostalgic adulation for The Doors and for Cream and for all these, you know, already established great rock bands, but it's a look at how the kind of kids, aspiring musicians, actual musicians in Westport at the time responded to this music. And so I wonder if you could um, both tell us a bit about some of the local players uh, in this movie, the Dick Sandhouses, the Paul Gambaccinis, the Ed Bears, um, but also, I mean, tell... Well, actually, you know, let's let's go there first, and then I've got a, another local question for you. But who who are some of the locals that show up in the high school that rocked? Okay, well, uh, the remains are uh, two of the members of the remains, Barry Tashin and Bill Briggs, graduated from Staples High School in 1963 and 64. So, as you mentioned, um, they did become an inspiration for some of the local student musicians, and that's something that's shown in the film because. As one of the uh, uh, student mu musicians said, here are two people I look up to and I know, you know they're making a living in music and establishing a name for themselves. And The Remains did get a major uh, label record deal with Epic. Um, they got a, a major write-up in the New York Times by Robert Shelton, who was the music writer who helped break Bob Dylan in. Um, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. They opened for The Beatles. And then famously or infamously, they broke up a couple days after the tour. So they're one of the most famous what-if stories in all of rock and roll. But yes, yeah, so they were an inspiration for local student musicians. Ed Bear, who graduated from Staples in 1954, was a DJ for WMCA in New York. At that time, WMCA and WABC were the two giant radio stations uh, where kids listened to music. That's how you discover new music back then. So, you know, here was this guy from Westport, Ed Bear, who uh, was a DJ. He was kind of one of the dream jobs, you know, doing that at, at, at MCA. Um, Dick Sandhouse and Paul Gamachini were the two staple students who got this whole thing going. Dick came up with the idea for the concerts because um, he ran for junior class president. And his big campaign promise was that um, he was going to have the best junior prom ever and he was going to make it free. <laughs> And then he won. And then all of a sudden he realized he had to come up with the uh, budget for this. And he came up with the idea, why not have a rock concert? And uh, the junior class treasury had no money left over. So he approached Paul Gamachini, who was a year ahead of him, who headed up the Staples Student Organization. And he was a huge music fan. He had a subscription to Billboard. So the two of them teamed up. They did a lot of research. And um, they had to go in front of the Board of Ed to get approval to these, the auditorium and to even get some funds, even though they had funds, to get it allocated. And so they got it going. And um, I'd like to add that uh, for your listeners who whoever captured the, uh, listened to the BBC, Paul Gamachini is one of the best-known DJs in England, has been there since the 1970s. And Dick Sandhouse went on to be a concert promoter for some years. He promoted concerts at the New Haven Arena, uh, Bushnell Auditorium. Um, he he did concerts with some of the biggest groups around, and then worked for a couple of record labels, and then went into uh, uh, other business. There, there's quite an extensive kind of postscript at the end of the movie where we get to find out what happened to a lot of these players interviewed in the movie. And you know, sometimes that that technique can feel a bit jarring when you if you're watching something, you're reading all of a sudden. But it, I think it works so well in the context of this movie because, again, the focus is as much on the students and the locals who were affected by the music as by as about the doors and cream and whatnot. So to find out that so many of these people went on to play with Buddy Miles, to, to be DJs for the BBC, um, to be concert promoters, I think speaks to the formative influence that this, you know, relatively short kind of two-year, six concert or seven concert, I don't want to forget to mention Phil Oaks also played there, but um, the, this formative influence that, you know, at a time when people are 
figuring out what to do after the the cocoon of kind of the first 12 years of education, um, this really thrust so many people in this area into the world of, of music and rock and roll. And I wonder if um, you could reflect with me for a second on the relationship between kind of audiences and musicians on display in this movie, because so many of the anecdotes are now, these are adults remembering their experiences as uh young teenagers or middle schoolers uh and so there is that you know they they are these people were very very excited right for for these rock stars to come but also i think it's it's indicative of a time when popular music and relationships between audiences and these star musicians was really changing and that jim morrison wasn't just a singer to a lot of people right he was a rock god (laughs) he was like this you know certainly plenty of popular culture cultural symbols were sex icons, you know, well before Jim Morrison. But to hear the anecdote about someone running up to him, touching his cheek, and then just kind of exploding into ball enthusiasm, uh, it's both adorable and I think works well in this movie. But I wonder if, you know, listening to these anecdotes, remembering this time in Staples history, do you see this as indicative of anything bigger than just a bunch of great bands came to Staples, but also a, a changing landscape of how we relate to musicians, popular musicians? I think you raise a very good point. And, and yes, you hit uh, the nail right on the head that one of the things we were trying to do with the film was show it from the fans' perspective and how these bands impacted these fans in a variety of ways. And, and the fact that you had these concerts in this relatively small venue, Staples, 1,200 uh, people, where they were paying the equivalent of about $20 in today's money. So that it was accessible in a way then that it's not now, that people could get up close to see stars in a way they, they can't possibly now. Um, they could have these interactions behind stage. One of the stories in the film is how you know, one of the girls baked a cake. I mean, it's so naive today to think, oh, I'm going to bake a cake, I'm going to get to meet them. But she did. She got to meet <laughs> the rascals, uh, which again is indicative of how times have changed. And what we were trying to depict, too, that it was a, a moment in time that even changed by the late 60s, because by the late 60s, the Fillmore East had opened up in, in 1968, the new Madison Square Garden opened up, and now the concert business started becoming bigger and bigger, where the groups were looking for bigger paydays, could get bigger paydays, and so that that kind of proximity, you know, you could see a huge star in your hometown and maybe get to meet them afterwards. You know, those days were over uh, by and large. There were still groups coming to Staples, but not the biggest groups, you know, with hits at the top of the chart. And then interestingly, even by 1971, the Fillmore East fell by the wayside because I think it was Billy Graham, right, who was the promoter of that. He could no longer attract bands even to the Fillmore East because now arenas not were only becoming big, but stadiums were becoming huge. I mean, yes, the Beatles did play at Chase Stadium and some other stadiums, but they were the aberration back then. So now the whole concert landscape was changing. And today, I guess, just to illustrate how, it, how it's changed, um, one of my nephews is a freshman in high school outside of Philadelphia. And I was trying to explain to him what the movie was about. And, and I put it to him this way. I said, can you imagine Adele or One Direction, coming to your high school right now and doing a gig, and you'd only have to pay 15 or $20. And he said, yeah, get out of here. Yeah, right, that's, that would ever happen. And I said, but that's what it was like back at Staples High School mm-hmm. in the mid-1960s. And I think particularly coming at a moment when these you know, popular musicians were being, were kind of skyrocketed because of, uh, fanzines because of kind of more popular media attention to this level of stardom and yet still playing at these relatively small venues there was this beautiful kind of overlap of kind of the peak of adulation of these folks and all of a sudden you had access to them and if you want to uh, think about and watch and listen to uh, memories of that experience and uh, I highly encourage you to check out the the high school that rocked. Fred, thank you so much for coming by and, and talking about this movie. And where can people uh, learn more about it? Where can they watch it? When, when is it screening at NH Docs? Do you have any dates to share? So it, it will be Saturday night at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival, uh, 9.30 to- screening time. Um, and for those who can't make it there, there are other future screenings coming up that you can learn about at, uh, a Facebook page devoted to... Uh, uh, the film. 
And the goal after that is to hopefully find a distributor or distribution outlet so it can have wide uh, access. Great. Well, you can find a link to that Facebook page uh, on our show's website at deepfocusradio.com, where you'll also find an archive of all two years of episodes of this program. Uh, Fred, thank you again for coming on the show and best of luck with the movie. Tom, thank you. Okay. We'll catch up with you next week on another episode of Deep Focus.